Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast, your association's no-fluff playbook to navigating and thriving in Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Each week, we bring expert insights to help you and your association stay ahead of the curve. Hello, my name is Sherry Budziak, and I am the host of this week's podcast. I'm here today with Stephen Peeler. Stephen is the executive director of the IDSA Foundation. I'm so excited uh, to have you, Stephen, to talk to us today about your leadership and what you guys have been doing during the pandemic, and I really appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Sherry. It's a pleasure to be uh, on the call with you today, and hopefully we'll be able to share some tidbits uh, for some of the executives that listen to your podcast. Great. So tell us a little bit about yourself, and I've known you for, I don't even know, it seems like forever, um, but the audience hasn't. So, um, uh, so tell us a little bit about you and the organization that, that you're leading. Absolutely. I think uh, you and I met probably 10 years ago uh, when I was with uh, ASAE, leading the ASAE Foundation. Uh, since then, I've worked for a couple other uh, trade uh, associations as well. And now with the uh, Infectious Disease Society of America Foundation, uh, we are a uh, $1.6 million uh, foundation, philanthropic arm of IDSA. Uh, IDSA is a medical society and um, 74 staff, uh, budget uh, about $31 million with about uh, $40 million of reserves. And uh, one of the, I'm sure, few organizations that has had tremendous growth during the pandemic. So here we are today trying to uh, go into overdrive while the, everyone knows what an infectious disease is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit more about kind of, I know you guys have had tremendous growth with, um, I guess, if you look at you know, the challenges, a lot of people, we've all had challenges with the pandemic, but there's also some opportunities there. And I think with, obviously with um, IDSA, there were some ways that you guys could could expand and, and grow. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. I think uh, like most organizations, uh, we saw the pandemic as a opportunity to not only change our business model, really changed the way that we thought about our staff. Ironically, we were moving into brand new offices uh, the week of the, everything shut, shutting down. Wow. So that Friday, we were supposed to move into some brand new offices in Arlington, Virginia. And uh, needless to say, it, it almost feels a little eerie when you walk in there because all the totes and the boxes are still unpacked sitting on everyone's desk. Wow. And we really still haven't been back uh, yet. So I think for us, uh, it was a matter of what were we going to stop doing so that we could ramp up in the pandemic preparedness as well as a response. Our doctors, as you could imagine, are the frontline clinicians and physicians who are seeing patients, advising uh, ER rooms, uh, coming up with vaccine development, et cetera. And I guess from a layman's perspective, as I always tell my parents, if you don't know anything about infectious diseases, uh, just think of everything from AIDS to Zika. Uh, so we saw SARS, we saw uh, polio, et cetera. 
if you think of who our members are, it would be uh, Dr. Fauci is a member and a donor. Uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who leads the CDC, is also a, a donor and a member, longtime member as well. So those uh, folks are seeing a lot of uh, burnout, and we had to make sure that uh, we were supporting them with the critical guidelines that they were looking for uh, so that they could treat patients uh, in this new pandemic. Yeah. So, um, so tell me a little bit more about um, what are the, some of the opportunities that you guys saw? Absolutely. So the uh, first one was our real-time learning network. Since we uh, knew that uh, the eyes would be upon us, and we have a standing call, for instance, with uh, CDC and NIH from a public health perspective, we knew that whether you're treating a patient with AIDS and COVID or hepatitis, B or C with COVID, that more and more people were going to be looking to us uh, for that advice and for those guidelines. Uh, we actually created uh, rapid guidelines. So we've surged uh, our in work in that area, hired uh, numerous people during the pandemic in the guidelines uh, department. And as a result, uh, we are now uh, chugging away and put a few things uh on the back burner that we couldn't focus on any longer, uh, such as some of our face-to-face uh, -face meetings and some of our other training opportunities. Everything obviously is now moving online. Our annual conference this year was online as well as uh, last year, uh, which was uh, in the fall, uh, September, October timeframe. Yeah, well, and I know guidelines development in the, in the past, right, kind of there's a long process for that. So being able to adjust and, and ramp up for it with, you know, information that is needed quickly. Um, that was great that you guys were, were able to do that. So I guess, you know, what have been some of the, the, the challenges that, that you guys have, have had? What well, I, I would say the, the first one really was moving our conference online. I mean, just like uh, almost everyone in our space, uh, we are very conservative when it comes to uh, keeping people safe, keeping our staff safe, uh, keeping them mentally uh, sound, if you will. And because of the uh, flattening of our revenue as a result of the exhibitor revenue, and just as a matter of background for your listeners, 25% of our attendees uh, for our conference called ID Week are international. So even though uh, we knew that the conference last year was virtual and we pulled the trigger to put this one virtual uh, for this fall back in March, and even though a lot of organizations are still trying to do hybrids, we knew that uh, that was going to have a, a major impact on our revenue. So from the grant writing side, uh, the foundation was able to write a initial grant of $2 million to the CDC to help offset any losses. So we actually had a flat year last year and actually grew because of the stock market and other reserves uh, as a result. So one of the things that we uh, wanted to make sure that we did was that we put the resources into uh, front-facing um, tools, uh, learning opportunities for our members. And uh, basically from a fundraising perspective, I told our donors, we're not gonna ask you for money last year in the middle of the pandemic because we knew that they were facing uh, you know, pay cuts, pay freezes, bonus freezes, et cetera, let alone 
you know, burnout because of all the uh, hours that they're having to put in because of the pandemic. And uh, even though things seemed to be opening up about a month ago, here we are again. And our doctors are just so frustrated with uh, people not uh, wearing a mask and being safe and socially distancing, et cetera. So I basically took that surge team that I created last year to help us with that grant writing and research. And we focused this year on corporate business development uh, just so that we could grow uh, the organization. I did not want to come through this pandemic and say, well, I could have, should have, would have, or how about this company or that company that is now in the uh, pandemic preparedness space or in the response. So uh, I, I think that's probably one of our accomplishments uh, as, as well as pivots during the pandemic. Yeah, I think what people don't realize, um, unless you're working with medical societies that you know, I think generally people understood that the, that physicians and nurses and, and those that were taking care of people were, you know, at burnout. But the fact that they were having, you know, reductions in, um, you know, their salaries and things like that, too, because of the impact on the hospitals and all those other things, it was kind of like it was kind of this, you know, domino effect, which uh, which was a real challenge. So to your point. How do you then go and say, can you, you know, give the foundation money, even if they're, they're a really, you know, great supporter um, of the, you know, the organization? It was just, yeah, it's a challenging, challenging time. So talk to me a little bit more about, um, you know, I, I know that you guys put together a team to kind of help figure out where there are opportunities for grants and things like that. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and how you kind of ramped up this that team? Sure, sure. So starting last um, May, I think, uh, yeah, May 1st to be exact, uh, we pulled together nine uh, grant writers and researchers from across the country. And uh, initially the thought was, how could we reach out to people that were in our swim lane or in our space of funding, whether it's public health, diversity, inclusion, uh, as you know, healthcare disparities really uh, reared its ugly head during this pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, workforce development, et cetera. So uh, we started going down a path and looked at seven different uh, opportunity areas uh, for the foundation. And since then, we narrowed it down to really three pillars, mentorship, workforce development, diversity, and inclusion. And in a nutshell, uh, we figured that uh, through this uh, lens of looking at and turning over all these stones of potential funders, that there were over uh, 600 opportunities uh, totaling nearly $60 million in funding potential for us. Now, granted, not every grant is going to be worth pursuing. And so we ramped up our uh, focus or really uh, narrowed our focus to grants that would be minimum of $250,000, minimum of three years in length. And uh, as you could imagine, it's going to be the Gates Foundation or Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, you know, the large uh, players that are out there. But what we also realized at the end of that summer surge of, of research and development were two things. We were lacking in the program rigor and program experience. As uh, I mentioned uh, initially, we we're $1.6 billion 
budget at the time. So how are you going to ask the Gates Foundation for a million dollars if you're only a million six as it is? Right. So we went to our uh, current uh, funders and uh, corporate partners, and uh, lo and behold, it looks like we're going to tip out about $4.1 million this year. So just uh, within, without even touching any of those uh, organizations with the potential of the $60 million, we went to our existing partners and we were able to raise our uh, fundraising to $4 million. That gave us the sea legs, if you will, to be able to ask for a much larger gift. Simultaneously, as I said, we really didn't have the program rigor. So I brought on board a consultant to help us look at the programs. And uh, we're very excited to say that in January, we should have the only national program to uh, reach out to medical students in the workforce development area in a medical society. I, I just haven't seen it. We've done an environmental scan of almost all 45 of the medical societies out there. And most people will have some type of you know, outreach to medical students or residents to get them into fellowship. But what we realized is to prepare for the next pandemic, we really need a significant number of doctors to yeah. come through the pathway to go in a diverse uh, manner as well to serve the patients of color uh, in those areas as well. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so Stephen, just, I mean, guess what do you feel that people in your role um, that are executive directors of foundation, um, as you've led, you know, from your experience, like what can those leaders do right now to position their organizations for success? Great question. I think what I would recommend is that you really play three-dimensional chess. You take and compartmentalize your uh, business units, whether it's going to be your technology and your infrastructure to make sure, for instance, like us, we have 22 different tools that we're now trying to put onto one platform so that we can gather, whether it's a grant funder or corporate funder or uh engagement reports from our, our donors and our members into one, one bucket. We're looking at uh, our 40%, uh, nearly 40% of our members, 12,000 members that are giving to the society. We think that that's pretty high in comparison to most others. How can we make sure that we're continuing that growth and still uh, implementing moves management into major gifts, major gifts being $10,000 or more? Then I would compartmentalize the corporate outreach. A lot of uh, organizations like ours focused on one week a year, the annual conference, and everybody has to activate over that one year. Well, I looked at it from a foundation perspective and say, what can I do to have our team for, focus on the other 51 weeks a year. So we're putting together a comprehensive membership and a corporate partnership or industry partnership program that will look at all 51 uh, weeks of the year. And then finally, as I mentioned before, uh, the grant writing. It's a, a different skill set. Uh, it's a different muscle for us. Uh, it was something very new. And when you're dealing with uh, health, public health uh, and programs, from independent private foundation, family foundations, or some of the large organizations that we're all familiar with, the, uh, the challenge is what impact will you have? Most of us 
in the association space to uh, programs and projects that are really inward facing. Oh, I want more doctors to get into a leadership society, or I want more doctors to uh, be trained to go onto our board and diversify our boards. But what do you do for public health? What are you doing to impact uh, a much broader audience? And that's really uh, that next tier that we're uh, focusing on. So that's that's what I would do. Compartmentalize your fundraising, but also make sure that you have the program rigor simultaneously to support that fundraising. Yeah, that's great. So um, I guess, you know, what, what are you seeing kind of as your uh, next, um, kind of the next area of growth for, for your organization? Well, now that we put the the infrastructure in place, it really is about writing it out and executing on the different mm -hmm. programs and uh, rolling that out, uh, telling uh, people, whether it's in a corporate space or individual donor space, uh, this is what we're doing. This is who we are. This is our narrow focus. Uh, we're not going to talk about this shiny object or that shiny object. We're just focused on the things that we knew. We know that we can do well the uh, areas that will align with the strategic plan of the society, because uh, we don't want to have a competition that's similar to many association foundations where you have a CEO that oversees both organizations and a treasurer that oversees both. So whether I get a $10 million grant or foundation uh, uh, or gift, uh, that won't necessarily go to society programs. It's really what uh, where their program lives and how we can be good uh, ambassadors for that. So I think that the next you know, three to five years will go continue to grow from 1.6 million in 2020 to probably $10 million within the next five years uh, ambitiously. Wow, that's great. Um, so Stephen, I do have one more question for you because you know as you're talking about this and as a business owner myself and we had a scale, uh, not as significantly as you did this year, but we had a scale too. And there's those with that rapid kind of growth, there's some growing pains or, you know, how do you onboard your onboarding staff and you're trying to find the right expertise. And can you talk to me a little bit about what that was like for you? And, you know, I'm thinking there's a lot of things maybe you could tell us about like, you know, the, the both using, you know, FTEs and freelancers to how now we're remote. So how do you make sure everybody stays engaged and from a management leadership standpoint, I think there's a lot I could unpack here with you. So <laughs> any, any, any words of advice or any, you know, lessons learned would be, would be great to hear. Absolutely. Um, that's something I definitely learned during the pandemic, a new word, uh, fractional workforce. I did not know that there was such a thing. Yes. As, uh, I've heard of the gig economy and I've heard of all kinds of part-time consultants, but I did not know that it was actual fractional workforce. So we have uh, four full-time FTEs within the foundation, uh, program manager, a fundraiser, uh, myself, our CEO, and then operations uh, manager, so actually five. And uh, right now we're, we uh, have a team of about 41 uh, fractional workers. Wow. And what, what I know, <laughs> so it is a lot to manage. Uh, I would say lesson learned is make sure that you have people that are subject matter experts and very good at what they do and give them the opportunity to bring that skill to your team. 
So for instance, I have five people working in business development, reaching out to corporations. I also have four people working behind them just to do the backgrounders because I don't want these high power uh, business development people focusing their time on, well, does this company align? Do they not align? Who do I contact? Mm -hmm. So, we, we pull in the tools to build the relationships and I have them focusing on the relationships. Another lesson learned is um, just like on the grant writing, if this is not something that you're gonna do on a regular basis, I would definitely have a subject matter expert as a, a senior grant writer, someone that could advise and work with your senior staff at the society as well, as well as your volunteers to pull that program together, especially since we're talking about a national program uh, of about $2.3 million for our student interest group. And another program, once the people come into the field of, of ID to mentor them with another $2.3 million program, uh, this takes a lot of work. It's a heavy lift, but you just have to find a way to, to get the best of the best. And I would say, while we're all very familiar with uh, whether it's hospitality or uh, someone to do a strategic plan, when it comes to fundraising and program development, that's a whole nother um, wheelhouse. And uh, while some skills are transferable, you really need to make sure that you have people, even if it's just five hours a week, just to work on one little project for you, that you're able to do that and not have to worry about looking over the shoulder. Because as an executive director, last thing you have time for is 41 yeah. direct reports. <laughs> you really need just about three or four people that can lead those teams, you know, for you. So they have to have that skill. Yeah. I think it's a really important message because um, a lot, we see a lot of organizations that get really busy and they're saying, well, should we hire a full-time person? But if you can scale up and, and then scale down, or just if there are specific projects and you can use a a fractional worker for a certain amount of time, and then they, you know, move on to job next. It, it allows you to grow rapidly, and then you know you don't have to to worry about okay, now I've got you know all this overhead and things like that. So that's been that's great. That's great, Stephen. And, and you're right, the all area of grants and fundraising that's way out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> like that is a that's <laughs> definitely a specialty that. Um, that uh, is, um, you know, go look for the experts there. So anything else that you want to just add before we leave today? Yes, I is talk about experts. I, I hope you don't mind if I, I say a, a put in a plug for you as well as uh, Dawn. Uh, the OrgSource team has done a great job uh, helping us uh, during this process. I don't have time to test and look at all the different databases, for instance, that were out there and how they will work with the 22 plus products that I have, let alone the eight different revenue sources that I'm trying to manage. So to be able to give that piece to you and your team uh, has really been a tremendous help for us. It's freed me up to focus on other things, raising money to pay for you know the, the infrastructure. But again, this is a great example of you find people that that's what they do, that's their sweet spot, give it to them and let them run with it. And uh, you don't have to think twice about it. So I would say uh, I'm here if anyone has any questions, would like to, to follow up with me. I know it was a unique model, but again, I did not want a pandemic to come and go and say I could have, should have, would have 
uh, reached out and grown tremendously as we have this year. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how can they do that? Uh, IDSAfoundation.org. That's IDSAfoundation.org. Thank you. Well, this is, this is great. Thank you so much. I know you're busy. I really appreciate you spending the time with, with me today. And it was great to catch up. And I hope that we can actually see each other in person soon, maybe play some golf or something at some point here, if we ever get out of this. So, um, so I really, really appreciate it. Not that I'm a good golfer, but you know, anyway, anything to do these days, um, I'm open to it. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today and I look forward to, uh, connecting with you beyond a virtual hug. Yeah, that's great. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sherry. We hope you enjoyed this episode and discovered tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. .org Source specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com or visit www.orgsource.com to find out how to keep your organization on track to Association 4.0.